Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Okay, before we get started, let's, let's pray, because we always want to go into the word of God with prayer and petitioning the Holy Spirit. Lord, we come before you, and God, we thank you again for Hebrews 12. Lord, what an amazing set of passages we're going to study today, and Lord, as we dive into your word, we pray that, God, you would teach us everything, as you promised in 1 John 2, 27, teach us everything out of your word. And Lord, may all of us have fertile soil to let your word take deep roots, to be a wellspring of life in our lives, in the lives of our family, and everything that we are a part of. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're back in Hebrews 12. We're going to cover 12 through 17 here. And on our outline, we're, we're nearing the end still, just taking it in chunks at a time. And remember in, in chapter 11, it's been a little while since we've been in Hebrews. So if you remember in chapter 11, we went through the hall of faith with all those great people. And chapter 12 opened up with wherefore. So because all of these people in the Bible did these things and stayed true to the faith and pressed on, we too had that same call. And so 10 verse 26 through chapter 12 really is the true and better response is faith. And then the final chapter 13 are, are the closing remarks for us. And the Holy Spirit is connecting all of this because how can we be successful in this sanctification process, right? This life we're going through and the walk that we are on with the Lord, how can we be successful? It's, it's by faith. It's by the word of God. We have to be in the word of God to be successful and to withstand any attack from the enemy in our lives. And there really was nobody that set a better example for us than Jesus, right? He set the most perfect example on how to model our lives. And so we're going to look at a lot of things that he said today but keeping our eyes focused on him who is the word of God will uproot also all bitterness in our lives. And that's what these verses today are about, is not letting bitterness take root, which defile many people in the walk with the Lord. And it's, it's one of the, you know, it's one of the most subtle tactics of the enemy, honestly, because bitterness can start out very small and can grow exponentially over time. Or it can be something that's massive up front. It, both are possible. But in either case, it can, it can absolutely wreck our walk with the Lord. So we've got to be very cautious about this topic. So to start out, I just want to read the first 11 verses just to remind us all of where we've been. Starting verse 1 here in Hebrews 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now remember the, that sin that so easily beset us, that's kind of a reference to Galatians, and the cloud of witnesses are not just the people that you see in this room and your families and others, but remember we looked into a lot of how the angels look into our walk to learn more about the Lord. It's incredible. They've been, they were created in communion with him, and yet they look to us to learn more about him. In verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Remember, we talked a lot about on that verse 4 how 
if you are reading this today, then you haven't resisted fully like Jesus because he resisted all the way to the point of death. And the, and the Lord was making that connection in Hebrews how if you the people that are reading these letters and us today, that the fact that you're reading it means you haven't resisted as much as him. <laughs> it's kind of a, an interesting statement by the Lord. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scorneth every son whom he receiveth. Now remember, those were quotes from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. And so those verses out of Hebrews 12, 5, and 6 are direct quotes from Proverbs uh, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> Verse 7 here, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? So if you're enduring chastening, correction from the Lord in your life, you should praise God because it means you are a legitimate son. Okay, and that's, that's one of the many ways that I believe you know that Nebuchadnezzar was saved. He wrote his testimony in Daniel, but it, he also was corrected for a lot of pride from the Lord and then restored out of that. Very interesting man, Nebuchadnezzar, if you've never really studied him in Daniel. He's the only Gentile king that has a chapter in the Bible written uh, that's not by somebody that's Jewish. He's the only Gentile that wrote a chapter in the entire Old Testament. Pretty amazing man. But if ye be without chastisement, wherefore all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. And remember, we dove into a lot of times as, as dads, you can chasten your kids for the wrong motive, out of anger or out of, out of resentment or because you just want to see somebody punished. And the point the Holy Spirit here is making is that the Father never does that for his own pleasure. He always does it for our profit. He always corrects us because he wants us to get something out of it and to grow. That's the point. In verse 11 here, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. If you've ever been in that situation when you're in the middle of the Lord correcting something in your life, it is uncomfortable. It can, it can get very uncomfortable. But the quicker that you submit to him, the quicker it's over. And you see that a lot in the Bible but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Okay, so that's where we've been in Hebrews 12 so far. In Starting in verse 12 today, wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Okay, so anytime the Lord has wherefore or therefore, he's always connecting what we just read with what now he's saying. So because of all of this, wherefore, lift up the hands. We are to be in partnership with one another to exhort one another in this walk, in the warfare that we're in, in our lives with the Lord. And you're not in this alone. So we all have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But beyond that, you should look around and see that we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are here to support you in everything you're going through. And there's a, lot, there's a lot to be said about community with brotherly and sisterly, godly people, right, that are alongside, that will do anything for you, that will come alongside in whatever situation you're in and whatever it takes help you to get out of it. And you see this in Exodus 17, verses 10 through 12. Now, remember Moses and the children of Israel are battling and they're at war with, the, uh, with Amalek. And Moses is up on this hillside overlooking the war. And every time his hands dropped, the children of Israel would start to lose the war. But every time they were lifted up, 
they were winning. But he got tired. He got weary. He couldn't keep his hands up that long because the war was going on. And this is what it says in Exodus 17, starting in verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So notice that what they did, Moses' foundation he set on was a stone, just like we should be, on the rock that is Jesus. And then we have brothers and sisters around us lifting, helping to lift our hands because you can get weary quickly. If you think you're in this alone and the war is dragging out, you too can grow weary and your hands start to fall. And the hands, think about it as praise. Think about it as surrender to God. You know, what do you do when you're surrendering in a war to someone, right? You lift up the hands kind of thing. Well, the same thing when you approach the Lord. Lift up your hands in praise and surrender to him. But if you hold them up too long and you're alone in it, it, it can be lonely and weary. And so we've got to come alongside each other and lift each other up. And it's amazing just how even words of encouragement can do a lot of that lifting. You know, your tongue, James said, life and death is in the power of the tongue. Just coming alongside someone and giving them a word of encouragement or a compliment for the day, it's amazing how that can just sow seeds of exhortation, of, of the strength to keep pressing on. And so I'm encouraging all of us, just do that more. Do that more. So in verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. So our way should be the straight and narrow. It's a narrow lane. It's not a freeway. <laughs> this is not a 10-lane freeway through Houston where people are driving like maniacs, you know, and cutting everybody off. That's exactly what the Lord says in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter ye into the gate, the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. So if you're on a road and you're looking around and there's a ton of people on that road with you, you might be on the wrong, wrong road because that road, there's the earth and the, uh, the world, I should say, the road that most people walk on is one very wide that it doesn't really matter how they go back and forth and it leads to destruction and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So the word find in verse 14, it literally means to find out for oneself, to acquire, get, obtain, or procure in the Greek. See, the way must be discovered and pursued by each one of us individually. I can't, I can't do it for my children. I can't do it for my, my wife my parents, whomever in my life, you have to find it on your own. You can model it for people. You can point them to it, but you can't grab their hand and force them to walk it with you. You've got to set the example because they have to find it on their own. They've got to acquire it, obtain it on their own. So to stay on the sanctification process, it's up to only one person, and that's yourself. It is up to you. You have to be committed to it and stay on it. There's a lot of great examples in this room and a lot of people around you that can show you the way, but you have to choose to stay on it. And why is the path straight? Well, it's straight so it's easy to find. It's straight so that we don't go in circles. You know, it's straight. How easy is it to say, hey, after church, let's all go down to Jimmy John's. You know, it's right down the street. It's straight down there. If, if the way to the Lord had lots of turns and roundabouts and exits, and it'd be difficult, right? It'd be really difficult. It's straight so that everyone can see it. There's nothing obstructing it. That's exactly what the Lord means in James when he says, uh, from the Father of lights, of whom there is no variableness nor turning. And in, that, in the Greek, that word is there's no parallax 
And mathematically, a parallax is something that obstructs your view. From any angle that you're looking, the parallax, if, if two of us were right here looking this way, the parallax is where our vision crosses. And if there's something there that obstructs our view, that's the parallax. And what James means is there's nothing obstructing the view. So no matter where you are in your life, it's a straight road to Jesus. And that's, that's why the Lord uses that analogy. Make straight the paths. See, the way of the Lord is always straight. And this is what he means in Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So the high and lofty will be brought low, and the low and humble will be lifted up high, and the way to the Lord is straight. Okay, the way is also straight so that the lame, that word in the Greek, it, it literally means crippled, maimed, war-torn, you know, battle-heavy, battle-wounded, etc., can easily make it to the great physician for healing. Now, if you think about this, if it were not straight and you had to find that way, again, by turning or exiting, there's a risk that the crippled couldn't make it. But even, you know, think about, we've all seen war movies and things when somebody gets injured and they're doing the army, you know, crawl, army arm crawl on, on their belly to get to safety and they mostly go straight, right, to a helicopter or something. It's kind of that concept of the lame can get there and we all must go straight to Jesus to be healed. There is no one else to go to. You've got to go to Jesus. Okay, in verse 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, this is interesting. You know, are you at peace with your brethren, with those in your lives, friends, family members, whomever? That does not mean that you both are at peace with one another necessarily, but are you individually at peace? Okay, and, and the word shall see in the Greek, it means to look at, behold, to allow oneself to be seen or to appear. So follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. If, if you are at strife with someone on your side, again, not necessarily on their side, but if you don't have any bitterness towards someone and you have forgiven them, then you biblically are at peace with them, you individually toward them, and you can then see the Lord. If you're not, there's something blocking you from getting into the presence of God, and, and he wants you to remedy that. If you want to appear before the Lord, you must walk in peace and holiness no matter what others say, do, or throw at you. You've got to be at peace about it. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God in Matthew 5, 8. And the Greek word for pure, it means purified by fire. I thought that was really interesting. In a similitude, like a vine cleansed by pruning and so fitted to bear fruit, imparts no uncleanness, free from corrupt desire, from sin and guilt, sincere, genuine, blameless, innocent, unsustained with the guilt of anything. See, part of, part of the key to forgiveness and forgiving someone is that it releases you both physically and spiritually from that issue. And forgiveness, there's a, there's, there are two different types of forgiveness. One, you to someone else, and then the other, the father to them. And forgiveness is... It's a one-way street. You know, you biblically are required to forgive anyone in your life. And we're going to look at some verses out of Matthew in a little bit about that. There's nowhere that says they are then required to forgive you. It's not up to you at that point. It's up to them if they want restitution and reconciliation. Okay, in verse 15, looking diligently lest any man fall of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and hereby many be defiled. 
Okay, we all need to look diligently after our walk with the Lord. So looking diligently, this first phrase in verse 15, it means to look upon, inspect, oversee, look after, to care for, of the care of the church with re- with which rested upon the elders. I thought that was really interesting in the Greek. To look carefully and beware. So we all have to tend to our walk with God. We have to care for it. And to care for it, think about it as you take care of a garden or something. If a weed starts to take root, when it's shallow and it's been raining and you've been washing with the water of the word, it's easy to get out, right? But when you're in a dry place and those roots get down deep and they get entangled with other roots, it is so hard to get out. I I have a, this is funny, but along our back fence line, we have these trees and there's there's a weed at the bottom of one of them that literally I'm to the point I just have to cut it down to the ground every summer because I cannot uproot it. It's gotten entangled with the tree roots, and, but it, it's, you've got to get it early. You have to get it early. Otherwise, it will take deep roots, and you, it's hard to get rid of. So we have to tend to that garden, our, our walk with the Lord. We can't let things take root the Greek word's only used in one other place in the entire New Testament. It's in 1 Peter 5, 2. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. That, that's that same word as looking diligent. Looking diligently, it's oversight. Therefore, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. So just a challenge question for all of us. How are you looking after your walk with the Lord? How are we? Because if we're looking diligently, then we don't let bitterness start to take root. If you're not looking diligently, it will start to take root everywhere. And that's the second part of this verse. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. So what is the definition of bitterness? If you think about it, I think if we all wrote down, what does bitterness mean? There'd be a lot of different answers. And and I don't know that you can necessarily put one specific attribute to it other than how many of you remember from the 90s, the bitter beer face commercials? Remember those with the with the the the, they were brilliant marketing advertisers back then. Today they're just like totally worthless, but they were brilliant. And those commercials were hilarious, the bitter beer face. That's like the physical picture to me of what bitterness means. You just walk around just sour about everything. And these are some of the definitions when you look up bitterness. A feeling of anger or unhappiness. Anger and disappointment at one's perception of being treated unfairly, which breeds resentment. Okay, picking up and holding on to offenses. So bitterness, whether it's justified or fabricated, In both cases, biblically, it's wrong. And that's something that we all have to realize. You can have a very justified reason to be bitter about something, but biblically, it's wrong to be. A lot of people fabricate reasons to be bitter because they're just wanting to hold on to something and they're unwilling to forgive someone of something. And so bitterness starts to take deep roots at that point. It's closely tied to one's willingness to forgive. And as I was writing this, I was, I was shocked. I've used this word so many times. How many of you knew unforgiveness is not a word? It's not a word in the, in the, in the dictionary. And so I'm, I'm having to use one's willingness to forgive or not forgive. But it can yield fruit of being unwilling to forgive or being unwilling to forgive can begin to bury bitterness inside of us. Okay, so think about bitterness and forgiveness are very close cousins, if you will. If something happens in your life, how many of you heard this phrase, I can never forgive you for that? Okay, if you've ever heard that phrase, that's one's unwillingness to forgive. Okay, and then what starts to happen? Bitterness takes root, and sometimes it can take root for years. And many are defiled by that. Many Christians, their walk is stalled from that point on. And they cannot get out of it because they do not understand what to do with this bitterness. 
And the reverse can happen too. Something bad could happen or something that really isn't bad, but you choose to perceive it as bad can happen. And you let bitterness start to take root. And eventually years later, you can say, you know, I can never forgive that person for that. And then it just starts to go downhill from there, from that point. You and I are to model Jesus in everything we do, including forgiving someone no matter what they did to you. And one of the, I was talking to a guy that's been in a deliverance ministry for for longer than I've been alive. And he said, the most common door open in all Christians' lives to demonic attack and the attack from the enemy is unforgiveness. I'm using that word again. The willingness to, un, to not forgive. The willingness to not forgive. It is, it is one of the major doors from the enemy in a Christian's life. Because the second you are not willing to forgive someone, you tie them yourself physically and spiritually to that situation forever until you, until you choose to forgive. And if you've been if you have been through a traumatic situation, even as a child in your life, in anything, in any situation, and you have not forgiven someone for that, I am, I am pleading with you to take it to the Lord and forgive them. It is not your place to require that they then forgive you or that they come to you and say, I am so sorry for what I did. You make it right with the Lord and let the Lord take it. And this, this came to light very deeply in my life just a few weeks ago. Um, I've been pretty open about this, but my dad left us when I was six years old. I had an on-again and off-again relationship with him my entire life up until 2012 when his mom, my last surviving grandparent, died, and he walked out of our lives. I didn't hear from him or talk to him for 10 years, a decade. And you know, there's nobody, there's nobody that a son needs more in their life than a dad. So for all of you dads out there, just take it from one that, that hasn't had one most of his life except the father. <laughs> and, but he had a heart issue a few weeks ago. He was rushed to the hospital in Norman, and he reached out to me to ask if I could come down and see him. And we got to talking, and he he asked what we could do so that we, he could be back in our lives again. And I told him, Dad, you know that from the moment that happened more than 10 years ago at this point, I forgave you the moment that happened. And, and I, I know I did because it never physically or spiritually bothered me or hurt me from that moment on. Of course, I was hurt emotionally, right? You want to have a relationship with someone but it's not a burden that, that you're then carrying. And his response to me was, was something that really connected a lot of dots in my head. His response was, Matt, I've felt that for the entire 10 years. See, when you, for, when you forgive someone too, it's not that you're released, but in some aspect, some supernatural spiritual aspect, they are released in some regard to what they did to you, but they need to make it right to the Father, and they, they still have a requirement to come and reconcile with you. But that weight has been removed to some degree, and they're just holding on to it. And it's, it's something supernatural that I don't think really we can fully understand how important forgiveness is in our lives. And bitterness... When you study bitterness throughout the Bible, here are just a few verses on it. But look at this. Bitterness denies pleasure in your life, according to Job 21, verse 25. And another dieth in the bitterness of his soul and never eateth with pleasure. If any of you have known someone who, has, who is bitter, then they do not have much joy in their lives. They hold on to things. They don't let things go. They... they Typically, a characteristic is they're looking for some offense to pick up and to hold on to because it's just where they've been for most of their lives and they're comfortable with it, but it denies pleasure. Bitterness puts you in bondage, according to Acts 8, verse 23, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. See, bitterness 
is bondage. It keeps you in total bondage for your life as long as you hold on to it. And a lot of it can be, it may not be anything huge that's happened to you. It could be something, I've met people that are bitter to the Lord for something they went through years ago. They're, they're not bitter at anyone on earth for what they went through. They're bitter, bitter to the Lord. And it stalls their relationship, not just with the Father, but with everyone around them then. Bitterness corrupts your tongue, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. See, out of the heart, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And we're going to look at those verses in a minute. But your tongue will tell you if you have bitterness or not. Because it will reveal your state. Your tongue, if you spew bitterness and evil speaking and gossip and bad things about people, bitterness is within you, whether you even know it or not. Your tongue shows that. Bitterness corrupts the body of Christ, according to Ephesians 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. In that list, lists are important in the Bible. Notice the order of every list God has in the Bible. He lists bitterness first in that whole thing because bitterness then can produce wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking. It's tied to it. Okay, so we've got to be careful about bitterness. Bitterness is a major source of division. It's closely linked to murmuring gall and wormwood from Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. Lest there be lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. That root is a root of bitterness, and it's bearing gall and wormwood. So bitterness takes root. It leads to one holding on to an offense and ultimately leads to your unwillingness to forgive. And when you have truly forgiven someone, you will pray for the Father to forgive them. Jesus modeled this from the cross in Luke 23, verse 34. Remember he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Isn't that interesting that Jesus from the cross himself did not say, I forgive you. He prayed for the Father to forgive them. Stephen picks up on that. In Acts 7, verse 60, remember he's stoned to death. And before he dies, he says, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. In Acts 7, verse 60, isn't that interesting? Stephen did quickly get up and try to say, guys, I forgive you before I go to heaven. He prayed the Father would forgive them. And when you truly have forgiven someone, you will pray that too. Because again, it's hard to explain the power of forgiveness in one's life. But when you pray that the Father forgive them, supernatural things happen. You know, picking up offenses is a major issue and leads to many falling away in the faith. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verses six and seven. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That's a heavy, that's a heavy statement by Jesus. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Okay, the little ones referenced here, it doesn't just mean little physically as in children. It can also mean little spiritually. Because if somebody says something and lays out an offense, okay, says something offensive that whether it's truly offensive or not, you perceive it as offensive, okay? And you pick that up, and then you carry it around in the body of Christ, and you start telling people, you know, can you believe what this pastor said? Can you believe what so-and-so did? Can you believe how they treated me here, here, or whatever? Whether it's true or not, you are spreading that around within the body of Christ, and you can cause people that are young in the faith to be led astray and never return to church. There is nothing more powerful than the tongue. There is no weapon more powerful than the tongue because it can corrupt and, and guide the entire body astray. 
And that's exactly why James spends so much time on bridling the tongue. Because if you put a bit in a horse's mouth, you can control the whole body. It's that powerful. But that imagery is there because bridling our tongues can control the entire body of Christ too. So are you speaking life or are you speaking death? You know, it's just that simple. Out of your, out of your tongue comes the abundance of the heart. And there's a heavy price to pay if you lead those young in the faith away by trying to spread an offense. Now, please don't misunderstand. It's not, it's not it, spreading something is not necessarily, hey, this is a false teaching. You know, that's not gossip. You're pointing people to the word and you're helping them understand something, right? You don't have to use someone's name necessarily. I'm, I am very cautious about ever calling out another pastor or someone by name because it's just not that there's necessarily something wrong with it. I'm just very cautious about it. I would rather point people to the word of God and show them the truth the right way against whatever false doctrine is being taught instead of calling someone out necessarily. But you have to be careful with that because slander, uh, it can corrupt the entire body. Slander is, in Jesus' eyes, is the same as murder, right? If you have anger towards a brother, you've already killed them, he says. Okay, in verses 16 and 17, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, you know, Esau, Esau, this poor guy, he is not talked about well in the Bible. Here is the Lord, unless there is any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. How many of you have ever met someone named Esau in your life? Nobody, right? Nobody names their kid Esau because the poor guy, he just, he was bad his whole life. Uh, the Lord even said, in the womb, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. He already knew what Esau was going to be like his whole life, and the Lord hated him before he even came out. But for ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Okay, so that's the last verse we're going to cover, but let's dive into this Esau issue. Esau let bitterness take root, bitterness in his lot from the Lord, bitterness toward his brother Jacob, which means heel catcher. Jacob is a heel catcher because remember he caught Esau's heel and swapped places with him. It ultimately led him to forsake his birthright and regard it so low that it was only worth one meal to him. That's how little regard Esau had for his inheritance. He forsook his inheritance. And notice that God references him as a profane fornicator. Again, not one that's, I mean, how many of you would, would love to get to heaven and go, all right, I made it, God. Wait, what? My name is in your word forever as a profane fornicator? I am, boy, that's, that's troubling. But he let, it, he let it take root. He let bitterness take root. So Esau sells his birthright in Genesis 25, 29 through 34. Remember that You remember the whole story, right? Jacob is out in the, Isaac is about to die. He wants some venison from the field. He wants Esau to go hunt it and bring it back. And Jacob is, is, disguises himself by putting on uh, animal skins so his arms are hairy. And he goes out and kills something and makes a meal and Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And this was after, after this issue. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray. I'm sorry, this was before that issue, I mean. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me this day thy birthright. Jacob, you did not want to buy a used car from Jacob. Because he, he would swindle and connive any way possible to get what he wanted. And Esau said, behold, I'm at the point to die. Yeah, right, he's being super dramatic. He's been in the field hunting for a day. I mean, Stephen goes out there for like three months on end and comes back fine. Esau's out there for a day and he's like about to die. 
So I'm at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, swear to me this day. And he swore unto him and he sold his birthright to Jacob for one meal. He valued what he had inherited from God so little that he sold it for one meal. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He despised it. He despised it because he let bitterness take root. Okay, and look at the end of verse 17. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Esau was obviously repentant after selling his inheritance, but the repentance could not be granted on behalf of Isaac, not Esau, as a type of the father when it came time to distribute the inheritance. So later, after Genesis, when he sells his birthright, remember later the whole thing with Isaac happens, and Jacob comes in and usurps him, gets the blessing, And I want you to notice in Genesis 27, 37 through 41, notice the line that's underlined, and Esau lifted up his voice and wept. The place of repentance that he could not find was on behalf of the father, not on behalf of him. And you and I, there's a very deep lesson here. When you and I forfeit an inheritance in the eternal kingdom, you can be as sad as you can be when you get on the other side but it's too late. You cannot seek a place of repentance on behalf of the Father. The Father will not turn away at that point from what judgment has been cast down for what you did or didn't do. You walk into an inheritance based on what you did in this life. And as sad as you could be by selling your birthright or your inheritance, when you get on the other side, there's no place of repentance found for you. And that may sound harsh and heavy, but it's a call to behavior now. That's what it is. It's kind of like when someone does something bad in this life, there's, there's a consequence for it, right? You can be sorry, but if you injure someone in a car wreck, they're still injured. Um, if you have a child out of wedlock, it's still there, right? The things happen. They're a consequential but you can be forgiven, but the consequence stands. I hope that makes sense, what I'm saying. So when you get on the other side of this, what the key for all of us is to, are, is to press on in this life so that we can walk into an inheritance that we are so excited to get to. And one of the things to make sure that that, that happens is you've got to uproot bitterness. I mean, you've got to take it by the root and pull it up because Esau was very bitter his whole life. He was very bitter at a lot of things. Um, We're going to talk about, at the end of this, I don't have this in your notes, but I'm just going to briefly touch on Cain and Abel. Cain was bitter. Um, As a result, he murdered his brother. So the sum of the matter, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and on. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. See, there's that peace again. In the body of Christ, there should be peace amongst, especially if there's there's not peace amongst people that are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, where are you going to find it? I mean, that's, there are some secular groups that have nothing to do with God that are more at peace than a lot of churches and bodies of Christ. We had an entire church in our town we grew up in break apart because they couldn't decide what color to paint the bathroom. You know, it's sad. I mean, what people focus on and get hung up on. And can we just go through life and serve the Lord together? I mean, isn't that enough? And we don't need to pick up offenses and hold on to them. Be at peace with one another. If you have something against someone too, The Bible's very clear. You go directly to them. Don't go around to eight of their friends and to the Sunday school group and whomever and talk bad about them. Go to them. Uh, I remember there was a a Sunday school class in Kansas City when Randy and I lived up there. And one of the things that just drove me crazy is hearing people talk bad about their spouses. 
it drove me crazy how many people would walk around, well, my, my wife just doesn't ever do this, you know, fill in the blank. It's like, well, have you talked to her about that? Well, no, I'm just here. I'm, I thought you'd want to hear it. You know, no, <laughs> I don't want to hear it, actually. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Verse 14 here in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man. You know, turn the other cheek. Um, if they ask for your coat, give them their house, your house, right? That kind of concept of do not return evil for evil because vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. It will, be, it will have restitution, just not from you. Let God take care of that. But ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit. Bitterness will quench the Holy Spirit in your life. It can, it can just choke it out like a weed. If you feel heavy, if you feel like you're not hearing from the Lord or your, or your quiet time is not being fruitful, look at bitterness. Look at unforgiveness. Again, it's not a word. I, I can't get away from using it. But look for those things. Get rid of them out of your life. Let Jesus take that off of you and walk in freedom. Despise not prophesying. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to be blameless, don't hold on to things. Let it go. Let it go and walk in freedom. And forgive someone for anything that they've done to you. Or even if they didn't really do anything, but you don't even know why you're upset, the enemy's rooted something, take it to Jesus and get it out of your life. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. I love how that verse ends. Greet all brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. You know, is there anyone in your life that you need to forgive? You don't have to answer out loud, obviously, but, but think about it. Do not hold on to it. Release yourself physically and spiritually. Forgiveness is so important because look what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verses 34 and 35. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespass. If you do not forgive someone as the Lord has modeled for us, you are opening a door to be delivered to the tormentors. And Jesus means that very, very literally. In fact, that guy that I was mentioning who has run that deliverance ministry has found that the tormentors can be up to 32 different demons. And that doesn't mean the, the believer is possessed necessarily. It's oppression. It's attack. It's demonic activity in your life. And you do not want that. And Jesus means that literally. If, you will hold, if you're holding on to something and won't forgive someone, he's going to chasten you in a way that you do not want to be chastened. He will deliver you over to the tormentors. Okay, one last thing, two last things that the Lord reminded me of this morning that I did not get put in the notes. But Cain and Abel, think about that. Cain was very bitter, and that bitterness led to murder. Okay, what does Jesus say about that? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. That's in Matthew 15, 18 through 20, if you want to write those verses down. And his whole point he's talking about here, he's saying, hey, anything that you take that's unclean in your mouth, your body takes care of it and gets rid of it. But what comes out of the mouth defiles a man because anger is the same as murder. 
Bitterness leads to murder, slander, anger, all of those things. Matthew 12, verse 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Pay attention to what people are saying, even those in your life around you. If someone is pessimistic and speaking negatively and critically about people constantly in your life, you need to second guess and and rethink that relationship, okay? Or go to them and share with them, hey, this is not healthy for you or those around you. You've got to get rid of that, okay? You have to get rid of that. Jesus' parable of the wages This is the last uh, section here. Write these down too in your notes. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he set them into his vineyard. So early in the morning, the man that owns the vineyard goes out, hires laborers, pays them a penny a day. And he went out about the third hour, that'd be around 9 a.m., in, in Jewish culture, the day would start typically at 6 a.m. So that was kind of hour one in their minds, okay? About 6 a.m. So about the third hour, so 9 a.m. Saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again, he went out about the sixth hour, so around noon, and the ninth hour, around three, and did likewise. And at about the eleventh hour, so late in the evening or afternoon, He went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when the even evening, then when the even was come, the evening, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, they received every man a penny. Okay, how excited are the guys that have been there since 6 a.m.? Right, they've been there since 6. These other guys have been there since 5 p.m. And they're getting the same reward and wage that I'm getting. Okay, bitterness. Bitterness is taking root. Uh Uh-oh, and when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house, saying, these last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal to us, which hath borne the burden of the heat of the day. Man, I've been doing everything. I've been working so hard. I've been out here for 12 hours today in 100 degree heat in this desert, you know, working in a vineyard, trying to pull what little grapes we can grow out here. And you're telling me I'm getting a penny and these guys that were here for 60 minutes and didn't even need a water break are getting the same thing? You know, can you imagine? This is the murmuring that's starting. The murmuring, the clamoring, the gall, the wormwood. But he answered one of them, so the master of the house, the vineyard owner, and said, friend, I do thee no wrong. Dost thou not agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I'm good? So the last shall be first and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. And you, know, you think, about, think about the guy on the cross next to Jesus. He could do nothing in his life. He worked the very last hour in the vineyard. And yet his work and his testimony has rippled for all eternity. It is one of the greatest witnesses for those on their deathbed that do not know the Lord. Because look at this guy. Here's a guy that said, Father, today, just take me, bring me to paradise with you. Forgive me. And Jesus says, today, surely you will be with me in paradise. He, he couldn't go down and get baptized. He couldn't feed the poor or the hungry. He couldn't help out those that were sick and maimed. And yet, he has an inheritance for obedience that rippled for all eternity. And he worked the last hour in the vineyard. And that's an incredible thing. And praise God that he was accepted because the fruit of what he did, there are so many people that on their deathbed accept Jesus because of that one testimony that you don't have to do anything. 
just cry out to him right now. And so for all of us, the call today, the call to action to close up here is to not forsake the inheritance being laid up for you. Do not be a profane fornicator like Esau. Do not forsake the inheritance for one meal. And it's one of my favorite lists in the slides that we've ever looked at here at church, but the, the New Testament has five crowns laid out in it, each one tied to something different that you and I do in our lives. The crown of life in James 1.12 and Revelation 2.10, the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8, the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4, the crown imperishable in 1 Corinthians 9.25, and the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. And there are some other rewards in the Bible, the rewards to the overcomer that are all through the book of Revelation, chapter two and three. Aaron, can you go to the next slide? Okay, just eat of the tree of life in Revelation 2, seven, not heard of the second death in Revelation 2, 11, hidden manna on a white stone in a new name in verse 17, Revelation 2, power over the nations in Revelation 2, 26. That one's pretty exciting. White raiment in Revelation 3.5, a pillar and a new name in Revelation 3.12, sit with Christ on his throne. Man, if that was it, that'd be enough, wouldn't it? Revelation 3, verse 21, and to inherit all things at the, near the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21, verse 7. So how do you become an overcomer? Because all of those are laid up for the overcomer. You remain loyal to God in Revelation 2, 1 through 3. You don't lose your first love like the church of Ephesus. They lost their first love. You overcome trials and tribulations while remaining faithful in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Be spiritually zealous for the Lord in, ch in chapter 2, verse 19. You do not deny Jesus in Revelation 3, 8 and 10. You do not defile your garments in Revelation 3, 4, and you keep the word of his patience in Revelation 3, 10. And I need to add to this, you uproot all bitterness because by, many, by that many are defiled according to Hebrews 12, verse verses 12 through 17, and bitterness. You know, bitterness can also, one, one thing, just one last thought here to close, and we'll close in prayer. Bitterness will isolate you because not only does it cause you to look at everyone else critically and with an eye of uh, wanting to break fellowship, but bitterness will isolate you such that you don't want to open up to others, right? Maybe you've been hurt by someone. Maybe something's happened in your life that has hurt you, it will cause you to block relationships and isolate you. And what does the enemy want from the garden? He wants you alone. Because if you're alone, he can steal, kill, and destroy. But when we're together and we lift up the feeble hands, just like Moses, we can win the war. And so we've all gotta be watchful to uproot that, take care of the garden and be watchful. And if you keep your eyes up on Jesus, it will help you to be watchful. And he wants you to keep focus on him because we all have a call. Now, if you're seeing this and you're not saved, uh, it's really simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is so simple, praise God it is, because I certainly would mess it up if there was something else we had to do. But that's what it's about, is surrendering to him your tongue. And it's amazing how you have to confess with your tongue, right? The power of the tongue to give you life. So if you're seeing this and you're not born again, please do that today. Use your tongue to have everlasting life. Lord, we come before you and we just thank you for this time together. God, we pray that you would go before us this week and make our paths straight a highway to you, God. Lord, and use your word as a sword in our lives, as a double-edged sword, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing asunder the soul and the spirit to divide out any bitterness or unwillingness to forgive that we have in our lives. Divide that out, Lord. Cut it out of the garden and uproot it and take it away, never to take root again in any of us. We thank you for the promise that you have to do that. And Lord, as we surrender our lives to you with our hands up, Lord, we thank you that we will win in this war. So be with us this week and lead us, Lord, in our schools. 
Let our school buildings be full of your Holy Spirit and your anointing to teach us everything. And God, again, we lift up Leo to you. Please heal him right now and let him walk in a healthy manner, vibrant and full of life this day. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, we thank you for everything. And in your name, we pray, Lord. Amen.